Father, uh, we thank you very much for your word and all that it does in our lives. And Lord, we so enjoy uh, singing to you and singing about you. I pray that you would uh, speak to our brothers and sisters about the possibilities of their uh, being available uh, to help us in worshiping you in that way in the song service. So uh, we just um, look forward to what you're going to do uh, in those occasions and this evening as we examine your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we have read about uh, the birth uh, of Jesus in different sections and parts in Sunday morning and Sunday evening and uh, different services in the previous weeks. And we had uh, read all the way up to verse 24 where uh, Mary and Joseph uh, came uh, to essentially dedicate uh, Jesus and uh, fulfill the law in making an offering for the firstborn child. And they presented uh, the pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons as Leviticus chapter 12, verse 2, and then verse 8 uh, indicate that they should be obedient in. And in verse 25, it says, And behold... There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, consider that that is the Holy Spirit's summary of this man. That's, that's quite a commendation. Uh, you know, if, if the Holy Spirit were to have recorded such things about us, It'd be incredibly flattering to consider that, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit said that we were just and devout. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I would never place those uh, upon myself as labels. Uh, but uh, certainly the Holy Spirit did. Oh, Simeon also, uh, what a, a great encouragement to us uh, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Uh, there is a, uh, hey brother, uh, others with you? Cool. Um, uh, so we're in uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, just having begun at verse 25. So, um, you know, labeled here by the Holy Spirit as uh, just and devout, uh, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Um, insightful enough filled with the Holy Spirit enough that his heart and mind are fixed and focused on God's promises and how they're going to be fulfilled and when they're going to be fulfilled. You know, there are a lot of people today who, you know, the church might label as, you know, just and devout, but they themselves might not be looking for the consolation of Israel, not be looking for the Messiah. We are encouraged to, commanded even by Jesus and all of the apostles uh, to be looking for the return of the Lord. Um, you know, I, I don't mean to make more of it than the scripture does, but it's important to recognize that, uh, you know, Jesus, you know, talks about uh, the good servant versus the wicked servant. And he says that the wicked servant uh, said that his Lord delays his coming. Okay, And I don't mean to imply at all that, uh, you know, people who are not pre-tribulationists are somehow wicked. Okay. Uh, that's uh, between them and the Lord. But I will say this, that if, if I'm saying to you right now, if, I, if as a teacher, I was to ever to say to you, well, um, the Lord is going to come back halfway through the tribulation, or the Lord is going to come back for us as a church to rapture the church at the end of the tribulation, then I'm telling you that as of this moment right now, there's a minimum of three and a half years before the Lord can come back, or I'm telling you that there's seven years before the Lord can come back. Okay, so Because even if it kicks off this instant, I'm saying that those things have to happen first. The scripture very clearly states, Jesus very clearly states, the apostles all very clearly state that the church should be constantly 
looking for the immediate return of Jesus Christ. The only way you do that is if it's going to happen before the tribulation begins because we have very clear indications as to what the beginning, what the middle, and what the end of the tribulation is. There are a few indicators, right? Coming of the Antichrist, in particular, the Antichrist will sign a seven-year agreement with the nation of Israel that they can have their temple and that they can perform sacrifice within it. He will break it at the three-and-a-half-year mark. And, of course, if you know when it began and you know what the midpoint is at the three-and-a-half years, then you also know where the end is at seven-and-a-half years, which also gives you the ability to know when Jesus is going to come back. Right? No man shall know the hour nor the day. The only way that happens is if it comes upon you as a surprise. If you can look at any moment and say, oh, I missed it, but now I know we're in the tribulation and I know it began back there on this date because that's when that contract was signed. So, so much time has gone by. So I know that the three and a half year mark is right here. Or I know that the seven year mark is down there. See, this man was attuned to the Holy Spirit and he was living a life in constant, hopeful expectation of the coming of the Messiah. A just and devout man who was seeking the consolation of Israel. That's who, that's who we should be, men and women. Just and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and that's the Holy Spirit telling us that the Holy Spirit was upon him. So it's a, quite a confirmation. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we have no indication here that he had, uh, you know, started a cult following of people who, you know what I'm saying? He isn't like walking around with his placard, you know, his sandwich board and telling everybody, you know, I will not see death until the minute somebody starts making those types of claims. You know, I just run the other direction. Yeah, it's it's so strange when people you know start making these proclamations. Just keep moving the date, right? You know, it's going to happen in 1958. No, 78. No, eight. No, 98. No, it, you know, and they just keep moving and moving and moving. You know, and if you're part of the Jehovah's Witnesses, well, then in the end you just change the whole thing and say, well, he actually did show up. It's just that we were the only ones that saw him. You know, it was a secret, you know, and uh, we didn't want to tell you guys. And then somebody steps forward and says, hey, wait a minute. But when the Messiah comes, the scripture tells us that he's going to put an end to sin. And all oh, they fumble around with that for a few months and then finally announce, well, he did. He put an end to sin. Aren't you glad <laughs> you don't sin anymore? You know, I mean, it's crazy. You know, and they and they try to spiritualize it and say it was an imagery. It wasn't fully intended to be interpreted that way. And, you know, change things. This man was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was waiting. And the Lord had revealed to him, "You are not going to pass away until you have seen the Lord's Christ." And there's one Christ, right? There's not a Buddhist Christ. There's not an Islamic Christ, right? There isn't a New Age movement Christ. There is one Christ, the singular, definite article, one, anointed one of God, who was intended to bring salvation to the world. That is who this man is looking for. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. Um, <clears throat> worldly folks would call it coincidence, right? Happenstance. He just happened to be in that place at that time to take care of these things. The Lord is there to make sure that he is doing exactly what he needs to be doing in the moment. The Holy Spirit has caused him to be in the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, what was just referred to moments ago about his having been dedicated, cleansed, uh, redeemed by the offering that was given in verse 24. So when he came in to do the custom according to the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Now, we can safely assume that he asked permission. You know, he didn't just snatch Jesus out of 
Mary's hands. He came and asked, and they, while they might have been hesitant, uh, recognized enough in him that they turned Jesus over to him, allowing this blessing. And he took up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Um, certainly, uh, there is the setting here which we'll examine, but I find an application for us. Uh, I have been present at many people passing away, and I have seen many, many occasions where, especially with believers, um, the person didn't pass away until a child or someone needed to come and speak to them say goodbye to them, you know, we say allow them to go. And I've heard Christians uh, put that on the human level, okay, and, and, and follow me through this, okay? I've heard Christians say things like, my dad hung on until, you know, I was able to get there and say my last goodbye, okay? Uh, well, According to the scripture, God is in charge of when someone comes and when someone goes. Okay? So I've seen the frailty of life in such a way that I don't mean to be offensive at all. So please, if I'm grading on anybody's nerves, don't, you know, it's not my intention. Okay? What I see in that is the graciousness of God. Okay, what I see is God orchestrating those circumstances. I don't see dad's strength in the moment. I don't see uh, the daughter's will to keep her father in this world. Okay, I see God's ordination. And, and I see it in both ends, right? Because, you know, what about the times where the people don't get there in time? Because that does happen. Okay, and what I recognize in that is I listen and I look at my own life and the circumstances that have gone on is the Lord wants me to rely upon him. Not that person and the bond I may or may not have with them. He wants me to learn that he's my foundation, not them. That he is the one that, you know, have you ever, uh, you know, been walking up the stairs in the dark and thought there was one more step? And, like, you wreck yourself, right? You could think in that, like, that, or opposite direction, right? Going down sometimes is worse, you know? You, you think you've reached the bottom, and you haven't, and you step out a little further than you should, and you go, like, a full two steps down and jar your whole skeletal structure. In there, right? Because what you expected to be there to catch you was not there. If you're expecting a human being to supply stability, you're going to be horribly jarred. Okay? What, what we should be focused on is Christ. Here, this man seeing this child and the surety it brings to him. You've got to understand, right? He's a just, he's a devout man. He's looking to God. Yes, this child fits into it. Okay, mom or dad's passing, the loved one may fit into it, but you've got to fix your gaze spiritually upon God and what he's doing in your heart, in your mind, in your life. If, if you fix it on the wrong place, oh, the disappointment, right? I, you know, I... Uh, you know, I've had my, I lost my father when I was four years old. And there are moments in my life going along where sorrow overwhelms me. 
with you know I'm in a tough spot. I don't know what to do, and and I and how do I how do I become a father, having not really ever experienced a father. You just sort of letting you learn to rely upon your heavenly father in the process, and he guides you through these things. So as we see Simeon here, we shouldn't look at these divine orchestrations. Oh, the spirit led him into the temple, and oh, the child was there just at the right moment, and oh, what a fulfillment. Yes, and let's rejoice in all of those things. But let's understand that Simeon's focus was on the Lord. That the source of stability, the source of salvation was his creator, was God the Father, was the God in human flesh that was right there in front of him. His focus was upon those things that were spiritual rather than what we so often focus on in an earthly sense. So uh, this fulfillment in his life gives him a great sense of peace and rest. And, and it must be, right? Uh, right now, <clears throat> the world's gone crazy, amen? And it continues to get more and more insane. And, you know, I do. I, I look at these precious little faces. My uh, grandson Jacob had his birthday today, four years old. And I'm looking, he is just, you know, face blue with smi- Spider-Man cake and just... You know, so excited about these little things of the world. And I'm just as excited with him for the joy of a birthday. And at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, dude, what kind of world lies ahead of you? And you can get desperate. You can get thinking like this is a really, you know, it, it could rob you of the joy of a four-year-old's birthday. If you focus on the things of earth rather than the one who controls all things, the one who created all things. Yes, here, there's a great joy that Simeon has in seeing this source of salvation. But but again, don't fix it on the earthly. The source of salvation, what are you looking to? All of us can do that. Whether you've held the Christ in your hands, right? You can hold the Christ in your heart. You can, you can look to the source of that salvation and what he has. And, and, and like Simeon, we can say, you prepared before the face of all the people the light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Listen, <clears throat> you guys know me. I hit certain pet peeves, and I sort of go off on them. Right? Um, <clears throat> I try not to just keep a bucket of pet peeves around. When the scripture lands me there, then I'll talk about it, right? Um, We just heard from Simeon that uh, Jesus is the revelation to the Gentiles. Think about the environment that they're in right now and what a remarkable statement that is here in this environment. They're in the temple. They're fulfilling the law. Mary and Joseph, Jesus, the source of salvation, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As Jewish, a Jewish thing as you can possibly create is right here. And the Gentiles are brought front and center to, no, this is revelation to the Gentiles. There is a teacher online by the name of Les Feldick. And Les Feldick teaches uh, hyper-dispensationalism, okay, where he says that we as Gentiles are inappropriate to study the teachings of Jesus, that we should only be studying the teachings of Paul because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Okay, and you're, you're like, wow, that guy's kind of kooky and uh, hmm, no big deal. There are tens of thousands of people that only listen to Les Feldick and thereby are only studying Paul's letters. Hey, think about it. If you've never read the red letters, how much are you missing? Okay. If you've never, right, 
gone back. They don't even read the Gospels, you guys. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because Jesus said to the apostles, do not go to the Gentiles. Behold, I send you amongst the nation of Israel. So see, we shouldn't be listening to the teachings of them because only Paul, only Paul. Do you see how warped you can get over some small thing? You know what I see in that? And if Les Feldick was here, I'd try to have a private conversation with him and not embarrass him. I see laziness. You don't want to study the other apostles. You don't want to see how they all fit together. You don't want to understand, right? Paul himself said, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. You can't say that unless you've taught the Old Testament. It's important. It's significant. And right here, at the coming of the Messiah into the temple, as Simeon greets him as the Christ, the Savior of the world, revelation to the Gentiles. Right? And I'll point out again, uh, the very first person that Jesus tells openly to their face, I am the Christ, a Gentile woman. Right? Woman at the well. Very first person that he tells, a Gentile woman. Repeatedly, Jesus leaves out of the region, right? Tyre and Sidon, that's all Gentile territory. He goes and he ministers amongst them, right? Gentile woman, you know, touch, you know, I, I wanted to be healed, so I touch a hem of your robe. It's not for you, right? It's not to be given to the dogs, oh, but even the children, you know, get the, or the, the, the puppies get the crumbs from the master's table. Jesus ministered to the Gentiles all the time. Even the place where he chose to make the headquarters of his ministry in Capernaum uh, by the Jews was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles, right? Because so the, the Romans loved to go to Galilee because it was known for gambling, for prostitution, and for drunkenness. So if they had some time off, they wanted uh, to be there in Capernaum. And then Jesus chose to make it the center of his ministry. I told you I was going to chase a rabbit trail. My apologies. <laughs> when you run into people, right, it's not, I'm not, don't ever take this as like, it's your duty to climb up on this soapbox and just attack. <laughs> okay. That's not what I'm saying at all. Okay. It's, it is our responsibility to encourage those people to look, there's so much more you're missing, right? You've only been dealing in, a, a fraction of the menu. Let's look at the whole thing. <laughs> let's, 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 let's take in what, uh, what the Lord would have us to take in. So, you know, if the Lord gives you opportunity, remember these points. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. <clears throat> Verse 33. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. You would think that they, you know, the way we sometimes depict Mary and Joseph, that they were completely dialed in on this, right? Simeon comes up, makes this announcement, and they're like, you know, graciously accepting, like, of course, we already know these things. We appreciate you, you know, sharing with us. But, uh, you know, we're a little further ahead of you on the program and the understanding of all that involves our son. And just, you know, just hang around and wait and see what he does. It's going to be a wonderful thing. Right? They've received promises, and they're watching some of them fulfilled. But they get a message like this, and they are startled at, at what is being said to them. They marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, and the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Listen, <clears throat> that's not exactly the baby shower greeting that you want. You know what I'm saying? The grief that she's going to endure. I, I can assure you that the sword that pierced through her own soul happened many, many times, right? When she thinks he's crazy because he's begun to say publicly, I'm the son of God, 
as much as she knows that God caused her to be pregnant, you're now claiming to be the son of God. Mark chapter 3, they literally go to take him away for mental treatment. <laughs> they, thinking him beside himself, went to collect him, is what Mark recorded. And Jesus, when they arrive, is told, your mother and brothers are outside, and he says, who are my mother and brothers? Except those in this room that do the will of God. It's not like he didn't know Mary was right outside the door, right? Imagine if your parent disowned you that way. Imagine if your child disowned you that way. To say, who is my son? Who is my mom? Pierce soul. As he hung on the cross and she watched him tormented and watched him destroyed and then saw, she, she pretty much has that confirmation that he's already dead, but then they plunge a spear through his side, you know, to watch your child's body tortured like that. Horrifying to consider what lies ahead of her, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Oh, the hearts were laid bare, right? There's a long list of hearts that were laid bare. As Judas is saying, oh, this is a waste. Why are you pouring out all of this ointment? when really he wanted to sell that and pocket the money, right? The hearts are laid bare when Peter says, I will die at your side, unless a little girl asks me if I'm, you know, part of your church, in which case I'll deny even knowing you, you know, to your face. They were bringing Jesus out, and they made eye contact as the words were coming out of his mouth. You know, hearts exposed in the moment. So many things, you know, Pilate's heart exposed as he looks Jesus in the face and says, what is truth? <laughs> you know, like most of our college professors today. Postmodernism is not all that postmodern, right? It's an ancient thought, you know. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Unless, of course, what's true for you is false. You know? You can't just make a thing true based upon how much you believe in it. Right? Jesus was exposing hearts and minds and thoughts. How many times do we read, especially in the book of Matthew, and he, knowing their thoughts, right, exposed them for what they were doing and what they were saying. I long to know what he wrote in the dust, right? As they were going to stone that woman to death. I have my suspicions, but I don't know. It was convicting enough that the oldest men began to leave first. My suspicion is that the younger men didn't even wait to see what was written pertaining to them. Look, if the super religious old man has already dropped his rock and left, it's probably better if I go right now. Not wait for whatever needs to be written regarding me. He's exposing hearts continuously. You know, even with Nicodemus, right? Ruler of the Jews. Sometimes people miss that, right? Seventy men were chosen to be the ruler of the of the Jews. So, so he's a member of the Supreme Court of the Supreme Court. And he comes to Jesus and he makes that statement, right? We know that you are sent from God. We? Who's we? Right? The, the leading members of the Sanhedrin. We know that you are sent from God. No one can do the miracles that you do unless he had been sent by God. And, and Jesus is almost like isn't listening to him. He just goes like left. In the, in the conversation. You know, Nick, nobody's even going to see the kingdom of God unless they've been born again. What, how, what does that pertain to? It's not even in the conversation. He goes right to the heart of the man of you are deeply religious, but you've never been born again. You, you by nature, as, are as sinful as you ever were when you were born. Remarkable what Jesus does to expose the hearts of people. 
I hope, I hope that we're bold enough and we trust the Lord enough to let the Lord expose our hearts to ourselves. Right? Because we can shroud them from one another for our entire lives. The ones that we trick most often are ourselves. When he shows you yourself, it's a very challenging moment when he shows you what's in your own heart. Verse 36, now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phenuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years. Now, uh, a couple of things to examine uh, before we move on. Um, <clears throat> it is sometimes said that there were 500 years of silence between the book of Malachi and the beginning of the Gospels. Okay, uh, Let's be clear that it wasn't a silent period of time. God was still speaking. Uh, I would not want to distract you with the books of Maccabee, but there was a great deal of especially Jewish history that was going on. And today we celebrate, we celebrate, the Jewish community celebrates Hanukkah, okay, the Festival of Lights. It's important to understand that when the scripture tells us that Jesus was going up to the temple in the winter months to celebrate the festival, you're talking about Hanukkah. Okay, the festival of lights. Jesus was honoring the history of the Maccabean family and the Maccabean wars that took place. Uh, so it wasn't a silent period of time. I wouldn't encourage you to become, you know, distracted, but I would encourage you to take the time to, especially some of the other books in the Apocrypha could really derail you as far as your doctrinal understanding of the scripture. But the book of Maccabees, uh, one and two, very, very important to understand the history of what went on in the nation of Israel and how the Lord was still speaking to people and preserving and protecting and performing miracles. All of that because right here it says that there was a prophetess who arrives on the scene who's very old. We're going to actually look at some of the numbers here and discover that she's probably over 100 at this point. Uh, so she's been kicking around for a while and following the Lord with this level of devotion for some time. There are always those who the Lord refers to as the remnant, right? During the silent years, yeah, it wasn't so silent. You know, we put our Christian ear to history and we don't pick up on as much as maybe we should. There are some things for us there to study. So this prophetess, yeah, it says seven years from her virginity. Um, don't mean to shock any of us, but the average age for a young woman to get married was between 13 and 17 years old. Okay, um, Usually by the time a young woman is 13 or 14, her parents are actively looking for her to be married at this time in history. I wouldn't recommend it today, you know, right? <clears throat> But at the time, when you consider that the average lifespan was 37, okay, different world that they were living in, different family scenario. So from her virginity, meaning she lost her virginity at marriage. So if we put her at 13 and she, you know, just the lowest end of things there, and she was seven years with her husband, we're talking 20. Now it's been 84 since her husband passed away. 20-ish, 84, 104-ish, 110-ish on the upper end of things. Uh, she's around or over 100 years old at this point. And then notice what it says next. Who did not depart from the temple but served God with fasting and prayers. 
night and day. Uh, there are those, I don't know why, but they want to say, oh, well, she actually did leave the temple. You know, she had a home and she would go home and she just was like, you just have to temple a lot. That's not what the scripture says, okay? This woman lived at the temple serving God, however she, she found fit. You know, whatever it was at the moment. We're going to see she ministers by word to people, that she cares for people, prays for people. She's praying and fasting. My suspicion is that she's so deeply attuned to the things of the Holy Spirit that this woman knows exactly what she should be doing at any given moment, right? Whether it be some profound spiritual thing or some simple task, Anna is probably completely dialed in and has a great sense of contentment about herself. That, nope, the temple is my life. <laughs> I am here and I serve the Lord. You know, thick or thin, right? This is Paul talking about, I've learned how you know, to be content in all things, whether I am abased or whether I abound. I know how to trust in the Lord. I think we see the same thing in this woman. She didn't depart. She was fasting and praying night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. Now listen, maybe Simeon was thought of as a bit of a kook. I'm speculating. I don't know. Okay. Uh, but based upon this, what's spoken of Anna, it seems as though the community had a tremendous respect for her. So whatever they thought of Simeon, Anna lends her credibility to what was just said by Simeon about Jesus. So she stacks on top of that God's credentials, essentially saying everything that was just said about this child is correct and right and trustworthy and honorable. You should all be listening to that's the Christ right there. What a remarkable thing, the way that the Lord orchestrates circumstances and puts them together. I've had the Lord work that way in both aspects of my life, negative and positive, putting people in the right moment to say, this is a trustworthy thing right here. This is good teaching. This is solid stuff. You need to follow this. I've also had the Lord step right in in the moment and say, hey, you need to disregard what's being said or taught right here. The confirmation of the Holy Spirit. It's important that we listen to it. Right. I'm sure you've had similar things where, uh, you know, you're in a conversation. I'll just string some things together that are, are nothing but my imagination. But you've had a conversation with somebody and you're like contemplating it. And you turn on the radio and there's another message about the same thing. And you're like, wow, I wonder if this is actually where my brain should be at. And then you roll around the corner and there's your brother saying, I was just reading this thing. And, you know, it's like more and it just doesn't stop until you're like, OK. I'll put my signature next to that. It's been confirmed to me that what the Lord is saying to me is also true. I suspect you had the opposite happen also, where you hear something and you're like, nah, I don't know about that. And then somebody else says, hey, have you ever heard of this? You look at this, see how that doesn't work? And you're like, oh, no kidding. It's important. It's important that we thoroughly exhaust things like that. Because there are people around the temple, right? You're the temple, saints. Your heart is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are people around the temple that definitely should be ministering to the occupant of the temple. And there are people around the temple that shouldn't be. The, the, the here, the confirmation, it's a positive thing and it's wonderful. And we appreciate the fact that the Holy Spirit gives us this confirmation. Sometimes things just don't set right. You don't even know why. What is that? There's something about that. I don't know if I can agree with that. Don't lay your chips down there. Look for the answer. Seek what the Lord might say and how he might confirm his truth in the circumstances. So here, uh, she, coming in that instance, gave thanks to the Lord, spoke 
of him to all those who looked for the redemption of Jerusalem. So when they had performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. The child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. I want to point something out in regard to the growing strong uh, and in the spirit. Uh, th those are as simple, as straightforward, and earthly uh, sensation as you could have. He just got bigger, and he just got stronger. Mental faculties, spiritual faculties, physical faculties. That's all it means. Uh, I, I bring it up because we hear lots of speculation about Jesus' childhood years. And there's some wild weirdness out there. Oh, well, Jesus actually left and, you know, went over to India and studied with gurus and blah, blah, blah. R literally, inside Christianity, this garbage is being taught. You want to know about Jesus' childhood years? There it is right there. You know, he got better and better with a soccer ball every day. That's literally the type of stuff that we're hearing. Motor skills developed, mental faculties, sense of humor, all of these things that naturally develop in a human being developed in Jesus. Oh, no, he was actually performing miracles for Mary all the time. And really? Really? Is that why she didn't have a clue that he was capable of performing miracles? Right? He was, he was probably, without question, the best behaved kid in this home. Right? The other children in the home may have heard from time to time, why can't you be more like Jesus? You know what I'm saying? But he was a normal kid. Right? And even as he grew, right, we hear the religious leaders saying of Jesus, saying of Jesus, don't we know him? Isn't he that carpenter? Okay? His father, earthly father Joseph, was a carpenter. But we even have confirmation from the religious leaders recorded by the Holy Spirit in the Bible that Jesus followed in those steps and was himself a carpenter. Simple, humble, obedient life. I make the point because we get to the baptism of John the Baptist and we hear the voice from heaven saying of Jesus who's not performed miracles yet, who's simply been doing contract work and giving people honest bills and taking honest payment. We hear the Lord say from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's important that whatever place and station God has given us in life, that we do it in a good and godly way. Right? Sometimes we think, well, I'll just cut the corners here. This is no big deal. This is me just, you know, doing the normal everyday work. If I was in ministry, I might do things differently. Jesus was doing things properly even in his normal everyday life. He wasn't doing things that when he was baptized, the Lord had to say, this is my son in whom I will be well pleased. This is presently my son in whom I am presently well pleased. May that be said of us. Amen. Right. I'll give you a further thought on that. Right. How many times have you heard people say from the world, I will not do business with Christians. Why? Because they're all crooks. I've heard it many times. Now, oh, that guy claims to be a Christian. You know, I had him do this or that for me and short change, burned me, didn't, you know, shoddy work. Jesus was just growing in the way that was very natural and yet pleasing to the Lord. Important that we understand this about him. A little bit more in here as we move on grew became strong in the spirit filled with wisdom the grace of god was upon him his parents went to jerusalem every year at the feast of the passover and when he was 12 years old they went up to jerusalem according to the custom of the feast 
When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Imagine the panic. Look, your own child lost for a few moments, a few moments, you know, in the shopping center, in the mall, in public, give you an absolute heart attack. Just, I mean, the panic it sets in. Three days? Um, you, you know you never even slept, not a wink, for three days. Now add to that that you lost the Messiah. All right, just give me a break. You're expecting any moment that the angel is going to show up and say, hey, we're just here checking inventory, you know. Where is the Messiah that we deposited in your care? You know, and you've got to answer and say, I have no idea. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. I'm not just throwing that at his humor. There is a great sense of responsibility before God with this child. And he's gone from their midst. Imagine the pressure that is going on, the heart-wrenching difficulty. Commonly in these days, the traveling parties that went to these events separated men from women and children. They usually traveled women ahead. Those children that were old enough lagged behind. The men followed last in order to make sure everybody went with the party. Nobody got left behind. And so, you know, men don't have to drive women crazy. Women don't have to drive men crazy as they're traveling together. All the different subjects and conversations. Everybody's just able to enjoy themselves and they get to their final destination each day, and everybody gets back together and divides up into family and know Jesus. Panic sets in, and they search, and they are overwhelmed. So, verse 46, it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Listen, Asking them questions is not the idea that Jesus is growing spiritually and saying, please explain this or that. Okay. Uh, bar, son of, right? Uh, mitzvah, meaning of the law or of the book. Son of the book, son of the law, bar mitzvah. Okay. Uh, it's possible Jesus is about the age where... At this time in history, he may have already been bar mitzvahed, but he's definitely 13 is usually where they do it now. He's approaching the age, so he's right in that realm, and these young men would be sent to what they refer to as the school of the book daily. And by the time they reached bar mitzvah, they needed to be able to quote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy from memory. Okay? The entire book. And the religious leaders would question them and say, in the book of Moses, and they would give some statement and they say, what do you say? And they were required to give the most, the three most common teachings amongst the rabbis, and then they were required to give a summary statement themselves, which usually would sound a lot like whatever teacher they were currently being tutored by. So that was what they referred to as being questioned by the religious leaders. That's what Jesus is doing to them. He's listening to them, but the questions are, Moses says, what do you say? And that's why they're so astonished. Now, here's another thought. He's 12. His ministry begins at 30. Okay? The men that he's presently questioning are going to be the religious leaders when he starts his ministry. I wonder... 
if they remembered his name. When Jesus' ministry begins, and they're in the middle of confrontation, and then they recognize his eyes, and they go, oh, I remember this kid. <laughs> I remember this kid putting me on the spot, asking me tough questions. And trust me, it wasn't arrogant. Now, now add that to they seeking to trap him, right? Formulated questions. Because they know we can't just walk in and ask him the normal everyday question. We're going to literally have to have a conference for three days where we argue amongst ourselves and develop what are the top three questions that we might be able to trap Jesus with. Right? That's garbage. He tore me apart when he was 12 years old on that question. You know what I'm saying? They're really in a conundrum. And it begins right here. So here he is. He's with the leaders in verse 46. He's listening to them, meaning he's receiving their answers. He's reviewing their answers as he's questioning them. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers because he's just flipping everything upside down. They can't handle it. Oh, you, oh you know, how about the questions he asks once he's an adult, right? The Messiah, whose son is he? <laughs> and they all answered, David. Really, then why does David refer to him as his Lord? Wait, what? Because no descendant, right? Abraham's children, Abraham never referred to his children as Abraham's Lord, right? Even when Joseph is number two in Pharaoh. Literally, the scriptures tell us that all Pharaoh was in charge of himself was his own menu. Just as far as what was for dinner. And, and that was really just reviewing what was being presented by Joseph. No, I don't really like that. Let's not have that on the menu. Joseph's in charge of everything. And when Abraham shows up, Pharaoh honors Abraham, right, over him. It's, it's, I'm saying Abraham, right? We're talking about Isaac. It's, it's a, rem, a remarkable, no, we're not. We're talking about Jacob, aren't we? Thank you. Uh, you know, it's a remarkable thing that the children aren't ever referred to as Lord, but Jesus is David's Lord. So he's questioning him in such a way that they're astonished, verse 47. All who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Verse 48, so when they saw him, they were amazed. And it isn't the idea of, you know, like a pleasant amazement. It, it's, it's all of three days of lost child, and now he's sort of running the show and this questions and answers meeting with the religious leaders, and they're dumbfounded and angry and distraught and everything together combined into the word amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Now, uh, that statement your father and I is going to come into play, as most of you know, in the answer that comes. Uh, but here in the moment, stepdad, Joseph, he is filled with anxiety. And we've talked about the fact that he is labeled in previous chapter as being a righteous man, a just man, a godly person. And now here in this moment, filled with anxiety, seeking Jesus, confronted by Mary in this moment. I've, I've noticed, I've pointed out before, um, <clears throat> mothers often use the term little on their children to diminish their children. Be careful of that, right? You and your little friends, you know, you and your little truck, you know, you and your little job, you know, just insert little... <laughs> Right? I'm big, you're small, I give birth to you, you're lesser than me, is uh, sort of the attitude. Here, you know, anxiety, your father and I, sort of, how could you disrespect us in this way? He said to them, why did you seek me? And it's the idea of 
Why did you look everywhere? You know, of course they're going to seek him, but like, why? Why was there a wonder? Why were you, you know, using the GPS? Like, you, you didn't, you didn't know where I was going to be. I wasn't lost. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I, I, I don't think Jesus was disrespectful enough to make eye contact with Joseph as he delivers that statement, but he might have. Not out of disrespect, but out of respect for his heavenly father. You know, you have made your father and I distraught. <laughs> uh, how is it you didn't understand that I would be about my father's business? Like you missed that. You weren't aware of what I would be doing. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. They were at a loss for the definition of what was going on there. Keeping in mind, right, this is Luke, who was not there to witness these things. He's interviewing all of these people later and gaining this information from them to compile it together for us. So we get the afterthought that they weren't in the moment aware of what was being said. It was in retrospect as they processed what had been said, that they understood. Understood what Jesus had done and what he was saying. So they didn't understand. Verse 51, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. It's important to fix those two things together. He makes a statement, Why didn't you know I would be about my father's business? How did that escape you? But then he demonstrates, the Holy Spirit records, for us, that he demonstrates full submission. There is no resistance. There is no talk back. There is no rebuke. There is no correction. Submission is what he demonstrates. He knows I'm here to serve God, but I'm also respectful of those that have been put in authority over me, my parents. I was a youth pastor years ago, and I listened to some pretty hard Christian rock music. And uh, a lot of the young men in my care as their youth pastor liked that, you know, and I would give them different bands and give them cassette tapes, cassette tapes, if you can imagine that, to listen to, right? And they come back and say, those guys are great. You got any more of that stuff? And uh, two of those young men I had given a lot of material to, and uh, they came to me one evening at youth group, and they need to talk to me privately. And they wait. We have this private conversation. They're like, you will not believe our parents told us. We cannot listen to that music that you've given to us anymore. It's forbidden. And uh, they start on this rant about how they're going to listen to it anyway because it's Christian music. And I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. Here's the thing. You're literally saying that you're expecting the Lord to bless your life as you rebel against your parents. That's never going to work. It's never going to work at all. I said, what you need to do is go home, apologize to your parents, and never listen to that music again. They were dumbfounded. They expected me to be offended because those were my favorite bands. And so therefore, right, somehow, you know, I'm not... I'm not more deeply attached to a particular genre of music than I am Jesus Christ. Right? They and their parents reached an agreement that because they were so submissive, the parents said, okay, you can listen to that stuff, just not while we're around. We don't want to hear it. Which, that makes sense, right? I mean, I wish a lot of my young friends would not put on any of that hip-hop while I'm around. I can't stand it. But they have no respect. You know. <laughs> yeah. Taste. That's okay. Here, Jesus demonstrates no submission. Submission. In a godly sense, they're going to submiss, submit in this. He, came, he went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. We've heard that a couple times, haven't we? And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with 
God and men, right? He, he was actively pursuing the effectiveness of his ministry. He wasn't of that mindset of, I'm so in touch with God that it's okay for me to be a jerk to all the human beings around me. No, he was demonstrating humility that he was. Imagine uh, the, I don't know how to word it, uh, how right he would have been to be arrogant. I mean, I, I mean, can we say it that way? To look down his nose at everyone else? To be unconcerned about what people thought of him? He grew in stature, not only in the sight of God, but in the sight of men also. Significant submission, subjection, obedience, growth, wisdom, and stature. I pray that every one of us would recognize the character of Jesus. A young man, right? Birth, we all look at him in the manger and go, how cute, how quaint. And immediately we start to see he's developing in such a way that his effectiveness amongst his fellow human beings is growing day to day. It's important that we do that. Important that we do that, right? You're not going to be able to win everybody over. But if you're just walking around with a chip on your shoulder, there's going to be people you're driving away that you should be ministering to. Submission, humility is what Jesus demonstrated continuously. So uh, that's where we'll end uh, for this evening. Um,